0: mm <laughs>
1: Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Mark Tarpening, along with Martin Eberhard, was the co-founder of Tesla Motors all the way back in 2003. But before that, Tarpening and Eberhard were also the co-founders of Nuvo Media, which produced one of the world's first-ever e-book devices, the Rocket Ebook. So for the first part of this great episode... Mark recounts the story of Nouveau Media, and then about 25 minutes in, we begin the founding of Tesla, which is, in my opinion, perhaps the most amazing startup story of the last 20 years. Very rarely have we spoken to an entrepreneur who has so completely disrupted two completely different analog industries, as Mark has been privileged to do in his career. So please enjoy this conversation with Mark tarpening Mark Tarpening, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast.
0: Oh, my pleasure.
1: I wanna. There's so much I want to cover with you today, so I only want to dip briefly into the early part of your career. But I believe early on in your career, you worked at a lot of um, disk drive startups. Is that right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, yeah. You know, when I I graduated Berkeley in '86, and uh, and then or '85, 80, I guess. And then I ended up going to Saudi Arabia for years. Mm-hmm. So I was I was orbiting the planet every six six to twelve weeks. I had round the world uh, tickets actually, so I really did orbit the planet, uh, doing work on computers in in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. And when I came back to Silicon Valley, uh, uh, I ended up at, well in, in the way that Silicon Valley works. I was at a party, and uh, one of the people there worked at a disk drive company, was startup stealth disk drive company. And they said, oh, you know, we were looking for somebody. You've got to come and come. just check us out. And then I ended up working there for a couple of years. They were doing uh, the very first of the, the sort of small drives, 2.5-inch diameter drives, the ones you might see in a laptop. Mm-hmm. And at that time, that was uh, very hard to do.
1: I, I, I asked you that because I, I wonder if there were lessons uh, working at startups like that that, that would apply later to, to what we're about oh. to talk about.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. So you know, first off, there's the whole sort of startup idea where you know you get stock and you you work for these little companies and nobody has any resources and you're all very scrappy, uh, and and that that sort of ethic and that and that uh, you know culture was very important and certainly informed everything else that I did, but but also. Uh, in disk drives are kind of interesting. It's very multidisciplinary because you have uh, man- magnetics people. You have uh, media people that are actually, you know, uh, in, in this case, magnetic media. Uh, the, the analog engineers dealing with the read channels. Mechanical engineers you know, phys- with the physical stuff. Servo engineers, which is a special you know, control systems part of software. And then the sort of firmware people that make the data flow in and out uh, in a controlled way. So it was a very neat project because you had all of these very uh, deep specialties, and it was in a great example of how software is eating everything. That the mechanical complexity in disk drives—if you look at a modern disk drive versus one from, you know, the 1970s—the modern disk drive with, you know, tons more density is mechanically super simple, and it's super simple because software has been able to. To take over all of those functions, and it's it, you know it's much much cheaper to do it in software, obviously, than precision
1: hardware. Well, I think uh, uh, software <laughs> and hardware that tie in that you just talked about is going to be very important here in a second. Um, tell me, tell me about meeting uh, Martin Eberhard.
0: So, one of these trips back from from the Middle East, uh, I was visiting my my high school and and actually my high school friend and college roommate, uh, who was working at a company called. Um, I think At that point, I think he was at NCD, and that was a startup dealing with uh, networked terminals. So, you know, stone age technology, but at the time, you know, very innovative. Uh, and Martin was one of the was one of the co founders there, and was essentially my friend's boss. So I met him, you know, through through my friend Greg, who, parenthetically, I just had lunch with uh, about an hour ago. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so did you, I guess you hit it off with Martin. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. We so- have. Uh, very similar ideas on things, and uh, and he's, you know, I'm a software guy, and he's a hardware guy. So you know, you kind of need both to to make things happen. Yeah, it's
1: sort of that perfect yin and yang. Um, so what is the, what is the genesis of Nuvo Media? Um, is it that you guys decide you want to do some sort of a company together, or or how does the idea start to form?
0: Yeah, so we we decided we wanted to do a company together. That would be that would be very fun. Um, you know, I was doing this, you know, disk drive stuff, and. And he actually got sucked into a little bit of that as well. Because uh, I think it was at one of his friend's parties that I was, that's how I ended up getting, getting sucked in. Uh, so he came and worked, worked at a couple different companies for a little, just a short period of time doing some consulting on the electrical side. And then we said, you know, let's, let's go do something ourselves. But we didn't know what to do, of course. We had a bunch of ideas and we, we quickly decided that we needed to do something that we actually knew something about. So, for example, we knew what disk drives were doing and we knew what Silicon was doing and we knew, we could see the the sort of progress. So one of the things that we realized was that you were going to be able to record video onto hard drives, which, you know, wasn't really possible only, you know, six months before. And it was just going to become possible. So you could make a a digital video recorder. You know, so you could record TV on, you know, uh, you didn't have to use videotape. That tape were those, you know, spinny things that... uh, uh, that people used to have these giant cartridges. So we thought, well, oh, that would be great. The only problem is neither of us owned a TV. Mm. Um, so we actually, since we didn't watch TV, you know, you know we, kept, we kept talking about it. I said, well, you know, we don't ever use this product. You know, it's got to be something we actually use. Uh, so we went through a couple of different iterations of different things. Um, and, and of course, at that same time, there was a group of people making TiVo. You know, they, had, they, had, they were almost at exactly the same moment going, oh, wow, this is just possible. Mm-hmm. And, and they founded TiVo, you know, like a, a couple, literally like a few weeks later, I think. Um, so we decided that the thing that we really like to do is read lots of books. And books, we had books everywhere. So we thought, oh, well, that's perfect. We can, you know, the technology is becoming available. We could display those books on screens. I mean, it sounds ridiculous now, but at the time, again, uh, we had lots of resistance. people said no one's ever going to read on a screen. You know, it's one thing to read an email, but they're never going to read a book on on a screen. It's
1: well, also, nice. it should be pointed out that this is around the same time that that Palm Pilots are are, are coming out and and, and people are exactly. using. So it's it's this notion that pocket devices are are finally becoming a thing. This is around like what 98?
0: Correct, ninety seven. Yeah. So yeah, the, the Palm Pilot was. Our, you know, we we obviously used that in our our uh, pitch decks to say, you know, th- this stuff is going to happen. I mean, people really are going to have these digital devices. And, you know, obviously it's going to take a larger screen to really read a book, uh, you know, effectively. Uh, but, uh, uh, but, but it's going to be possible. We're going to be able to distribute the books, you know, over this Internet thing. And we're going to be able to get the digital content uh, from the publishers, which turned out to be incredibly difficult. Uh, the publishing industry is super old. They've been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. They have a whole special set of laws that apply only to them. And many of the same people, like you go into these companies that are 200 years old and the same people are running them, you know, and, and they, they don't like change so much. Uh, so, uh, it was extremely hard to get the, 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 media, you know, to get, to get content into digital form. Uh, and we had to create, you know, we had to spend millions literally with lawyers creating whole new ideas around how that happens, the way that books are licensed, which is what you know is, is the standard now, but at the time you know none of that existed
1: so the the product you launch is called the the rocket ebook um, right. uh, I, I believe it retailed around five hundred dollars maybe and and weighed about uh one and a quarter pounds well give me give me some of the specs that you remember like how how, my, how, how many books could I store on the initial rocket ebook?
0: Oh my gosh! I you know that that's I don't actually remember. So it's certainly like ten or twenty on mm. on each device, and obviously you could then um, uh, you know it, it plugged in you know to to a computer, uh, so you could you could keep a library of you know sort of unlimited size on your computer. Remember, this is at a time when when dial-up was the the dominant means of of dealing with the internet. So. You know the, the common you know paradigm was that you know you would buy something online, although even online was kind of a, a novel concept. Uh, you would download the content onto your computer, and then you would transfer it over to your electronic book. Uh, there, you know, you, the, the book itself didn't have, have you know have wireless built in or anything. That was that was really not possible. At well,
1: that time. right, because Wi-Fi isn't ubiquitous yet. Um, cell phones probably don't even have you know 40 percent market, have market penetra- penetration at that point.
0: Well, right, and they don't have data. Right. You know, right. The, you, you can't you know, you can text to a cell phone, but you know, you you're you're not uh, you can't really transmit data that way. So
1: And uh, so also it's it's an L C D screen, it's not the e Ink screen that we're used to with Kindles, but but even that was something like was that was just suddenly available. Like having a screen that was able to be sharp enough to function as a reader was something that, that you were on the cutting edge of.
0: Yeah, in, in fact, we had to we at that time, and I think it's probably still the case. All the best displays come from Japan, and so uh, we had to to go to Japan and you know work our way into all the various you know the, the Samsungs. I mean, the the uh, you know the Sharp's and and Sony's uh, to see their latest stuff that wasn't on the market yet because nothing on the market was good enough. You couldn't really read on it. The contrast ratio wasn't, wasn't high enough. And the, and these are all black and white screens, remember. You know, color really, the, the color screens were, you know, terrible at the time. You know, no, nobody could read on those. So we, we finally found uh, a screen uh, made by Sharp that used a, a it's called DMTN. It's a, a kind of, of LCD panel that was unusual that had very, very high contrast ratio for the time. It was, you know, it was like about 10x what anything else had. Uh, and they had developed it for a, a client uh, to make a particular kind of golf computer uh, that, that never really took off, but they spent millions and millions and millions of dollars developing the technology and oh, really God. wanted to find another market for it. And you know, it, was a, it was a perfect fit. And it was the thing that actually, once people saw it, you know, we had all these meetings and they would say, oh, you know, no one's going to read on the screen, blah, 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 blah. And then we would hand them, you know, one of the few sort of handmade prototypes that we had. And they would look at it and go, oh, oh, my gosh, this is going to be big. Um, because b- before that, nobody had seen anything quite like that. Mm-hmm. I,
1: I read that, you know, and this would have been obvious in 1997, 1998, that, that you you went really hard at Amazon to try to get Amazon to buy in as an investor um but didn't have any luck
0: well sort of yeah no we did we we actually um uh, had a couple of great meetings with with jeff and he's you know totally great and we came to came to terms you know we we had you know sort of a deal
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um for an investment and at that time amazon was really worried about barnes and noble it was you know amazon was quite small barnes and noble was was the big bookseller, the biggest bookseller on earth at the time, and they were going to go into digital, or, you know, they were going to go into to online, and and basically destroy Amazon was what everybody believed. Um, it's, you know, it's hard to imagine now, but that was that was what, what looked like it was going to happen. So they were very concerned about Barnes and Noble, and so you know, we came to came to a deal for, for an investment, um, you know, just an investment, it's a Series A investment or Series B, perhaps I can't remember now, uh, and. Uh, we we then started you know when you get these things you know the person says yes here's the terms and then the lawyers get at it and they we could not close the deal with the lawyers the lawyers were you know there are the lawyer that he had uh, we just couldn't come couldn't get a deal the, the terms would come back completely different than what Jeff had said and uh, so meanwhile we're you know we're, we want to close around and then uh, we went and talked to Barnes and Noble. And because uh, we figured, well, if Jeff's really afraid of Barnes and Noble, then then we should go to Barnes and Noble and mm-hmm. see what you know, see what's going on there. And they also said, you know, no one's going to read on screens, blah blah blah. And then they saw our demo, um, and uh, <laughs> now I'm blanking on the head of uh, Barnes and Noble's name. Uh, the Riggios? Yeah, the Riggios. Uh, Steve Steve Riggio looked at it, and, and he's like, oh, oh my gosh, this is this is really potentially, you know, big. Uh, and they were in. And they said, you know, you can ask anyone, uh, you know, in the publishing industry, if we say these are the terms and this is the deal, it, it's, it, it's done. Hmm. And sure enough, I mean, their lawyers beavered away, you know, I don't know, for a week. And they, we had a perfect term sheet and perfect you know, legal documents that all matched exactly where, where we had spoken, and the deal was closed. Um, and it, it was just because Jeff's lawyer was uh, – was in, incredibly, not bad, but he had a very different agenda than I think than, than I think Jeff Bezos did. And what was interesting is uh, we ran into, th- th- we were going to be his first sort of, uh, or Amazon's first investment in a startup. And we ran into two other people over the years that were also in that position. And they had exactly the same experience. They They made the deal with Jeff and then, the lawyer—it was just terrible—and they could never close the deal. And they ended up getting money from somebody else. And then that lawyer got fired because Jeff is extremely quantitative. So I'm sure the first time he said, "Oh, flaky, you know, entrepreneurs." The second time he probably said, "Hmm, interesting, happening—it just happened again. Must be—you know—I must have just gotten unlucky." And then the the third time when it happened, he said, "Hmm, the one common denominator is the lawyer." <laughs> <laughs> was, and then he, then he closed, you know, then he invested in like 12 companies in a row very successfully, but
1: Months while many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, eighty-four percent of men showed improvement in their hair after six months taking Nutrafol's men's hair growth supplements. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair for a limited time. Nutrafol is offering our listeners ten dollars off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to nutrafol.com/men and enter the promo code Ride Home. Find out why. Over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com/men spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com slash men and enter promo code Ride Home. Get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com/slash-ride. That's two free weeks at the number one. The word password, all one word. dot com/slash-ride. one Onepassword.com/slash-ride. Do you? Uh, you don't have to. But uh, do you remember those two other companies that 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 missed with Amazon as well? No, I don't know. Okay. I have, I, so um, it would be. <laughs> With, with with retrospect and knowing now that 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 ebooks didn't really seriously go mainstream until until the Kindle to say that maybe a Rocket eBook was too early, but I mean I you know found numbers like you sold twenty thousand units in the first year, we're doing double that the second year, and you know right. by like nineteen ninety nine you have like the base model costs down to like one hundred and sixty nine dollars, so. It was a it was a pretty successful <laughs> early entrant into this market, right?
0: Well, I think so. I mean, you know, I, I think you can argue that, that our, you know, the the, the timing was, was probably, uh, we were a little bit ahead of the market, because, you know, the Kindle comes out years later, uh, and and by that time, the, the people were used to buying online, by that time, the publishers were used to having content online, um, you know, all the pieces had sort of come into play. So, you, you can argue that our market timing was off. Um, also, you know, when we got the opportunity to sell the company, it was sort of an unsolicited offer from GenStar TV Guide. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was a, at a very high number, and we knew we were going to have to go raise money again in the next few, you know, months or you know, we had recently closed around so we were, you know, okay for a while but but as we were ramping up and then we get this unsolicited offer uh, and all the it would make all the investors happy and this was this was in 2000 and you know things were getting a little squirrely. I mean, you know, the bubble it was becoming apparent that that all was not well on the financing front. So so we Worked very hard to close that deal, and we thought genuinely that uh, they had they had a plan for digital publishing. They, you know, they knew the TV guide was you know sort of fading away because you know of, of online uh, guides, uh, and they they had a they they had an interesting plan. I wouldn't say it would have been successful, but they had an they had a reasonable plan. Uh, and then, of course, a few months later, Rupert Murdoch uh, takes control of the company. And, you know, he's not particularly interested in, in electronic books at that point. He has other things to, to go do. So, uh, you know, it, it sort of, you know, f- failed in, in that front. Um, but uh, but on the other hand, you know, we had a successful exit with technology. You know, that particular product didn't succeed. But I think we did push, you know, we were part of the enabling technologies or the enabling legal framework and everything else that, that allowed then later, you know, the Kindle to be successful. And, you know, I... Read many of my books, of course, now either on a Kindle or my iPad, mm-hmm. and I, every time I do, I say, "Oh, you know, I was a, I was a small part of that uh, of that game."
1: Before we leave Nouveau Media, um, you, you had mentioned that uh, working with the publishing industry and, and negotiating some of the first, you know, digital royalty agreements and things like that. This is also sort of around the Napster era. So, w- weren't they aware of that? Wouldn't they be eager? To oh, play they. Oh my
0: gosh, were they aware of Napster? That was, that was, they were terrified. And so they, what they were very concerned with was getting any of their, their intellectual property essentially in digital form. So you cannot imagine, I mean, you know, coming from Silicon Valley, it was difficult to really wrap your mind around the fact that um, even in the, in the late 90s or in you know, 97, most books were not digitally typeset. They never were really in digital form in a normal sense. Um, so a common thing would be somebody would submit a manuscript, it literally, but you know, handwritten or, or typed, you know, like with a typewriter. Um, then they would uh, they would key it into some sort of machine. I'm not even sure what it was. Uh, and then they would they would typeset it. But that and it, it, then that would produce films that would then be, then these these sort of large negatives would get produced. The large negatives. Um, they had artists that would go and touch up these large negatives, even, you know, because they would They would even be editing the book after it had sort of gotten to photographic print. So then they would go and actually change. They would make edits on the negatives themselves, and then they would take these to these these type, you know, these presses, and they would they would do the print run. And very often, if there was photographs and stuff that were included in the book of their illustrations, those were done in a completely separate process, and then they would, be, you know, then they would come together in the binding house and be bound together. Um, and so there was never a moment where that book existed in a digital form that was machine readable in any complete sense. Uh, and that was sort of, the, that, that process I just described was normal. In fact, it was incredibly common for if a second run of the book was needed, um, if it had been quite a while between the first run and the second run, they would, um, uh, they would have to literally, because they didn't have it in any reasonable format, they would go and buy a copy of the book. And then they would, I'm not making this up, but buy a couple copies. They would send it to the Philippines they would have two typists retype the book in wow. um and then then they had a little fancy program that would compare the output of the two typists and find any discrepancies and then a third an editor would look and figure out which what which was the mistake and which wasn't um and then they would repeat the process and that's how they would do the second edition so <laughs>
1: So, were you guys able to gently nudge them in the direction of just going digital first? Might save all that all that hassle. Well,
0: well, they didn't. You know, they just weren't set up for it. You know, and so you know, we had this really naive Silicon Valley view. that's, well, you know, once we, you know, so we, we'd like the digital files of you know some book that that had come out, um, and uh, then we could format it in some nice way on you know for for our electronic books. And you know, electronic book formatting obviously is is a little bit different because the page size and orientation can change, so you can't. You know, page layout is a very sort of different concept, Uh, and and they were, uh, you know, we we just, you know, they looked at us like we had two heads. They had no idea what we were talking about because, you know, here's these photographs of the pages. Is this, you know, is this the negative of what you want and stuff? Um, So it took them. They knew what it was. You know, they knew they had to get there, but a a bigger, but the, the technical details were only part of it. The legal framework was extremely difficult because. The industry has been around for a long time, so there's layers and layers and layers of sort of legal precedent and and tradition around it. So it's very common for books to be sold by geographic region, the the rights for a book. So you have the North American rights, you have the English language rights for North America, or you have the English language rights for all other countries outside of of North America and and England, for example, or Great Britain. Um, That's a very common, you know, uh, system. So, like, how are you going to – if somebody on your digital platform is, a, is, is in South Africa and buys it um, versus buying it from from you know, in New York, well, you know, th- th- that's two totally separate geographic rights that are negotiated completely separately, and the author owns those rights – you know, sort of all rights not explicitly sold are owned by the author.
1: In the individual so territories. Individual,
0: yeah. individual, so so if, if the author only sells the rights, for example, to English language in North America, and then somebody buys it in Germany, well, he doesn't, you know, the, the, the publisher doesn't have the right to, 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 to send that file to him, to, to that person, because they don't own the rights for English language distribution in Germany, for example. So this was, you know, on the Internet, you know, this was an incredibly large problem of uh, uh, these geographic monopolies, basically, that they had. And then on top of that, uh, the, you don't only sell it, you also sell it by book type, or by, by published, by, what do they call it? I can't remember the, the term now. But so, for example, the hardback rights are sold completely separately than the paperback rights, which are sold completely separately than the trade, uh, the trade publication rights. So the, the um, those individual rights are all independently sliced and diced by geographic region. So now you say digital. Well, um, the publishers typically don't own those rights at all, at least at that time, because they might have had a contract to do English-language North America, but they didn't have the digital rights, right? That was only for the hardback. So the publishing houses you know, if you wanted to print out, you know, if, you wanted to, if they wanted to have you publish uh, one of these books of one of their authors, they would have to go back to the author and renegotiate a yeah. whole new contract because they don't have the rights to do that. The author still retains that. And a couple of the publishing houses maintain that once they had the hardback rights, that was the same as the digital rights. And, the, you know, the, that doesn't, you know, they have uh, you know, literally hundreds of years of case law to show that that isn't the case. That in each new format that's come out, the author retains those rights and must, is expressly um, given away. Uh, and we had one publishing house that was so proud of itself. It says, we knew this was coming. We were sure this was coming. So our whole catalog, we own the digital rights of, of all of our hardback books because we buy those. with the, We actually negotiate that and, and we have that. Um, even though there was no digital distribution, we knew it was coming. So, you know, our whole catalog is and we're like, ah, oh, that's so great. So we are like a week from launch when their lawyers call in a total panic saying all these titles that we're going to do at launch, we can't do any of them. Because it's, it's, we, although we own the digital rights, it turns out since we didn't know what digital rights were, um, there's no payment structure agreed upon in these contracts. So we have to go to every author and get a separate payment agreement before you sell the first one. So they still, even they, you know, they had to go and, and sell. but we eventually got all through that. So, so, you know, I figured that if nothing else, you know, we, you know, we paid for a lot of the lawyering that allows all of the content to be distributed the way it is now.
1: Wow. Well, thank you for, thank you for blazing that path. Um, all right. So let, let's, let's start on the, the next story then. So, you and Martin do have the successful exit uh, to Gemstar TV Guide, and um, I guess you you enjoyed the ride so much that you decide you wanna you wanna go again and and do another company. So, um, what are you guys thinking about when you're thinking of going again?
0: Well, we looked at a bunch of different things. So, one thing we wanted to do though was raise the bar a little bit. Um, the last one had been something that you know we thought would be fun, and we wanted to meet authors and sort of understand the whole world. And we met some great people, and it was it was totally fine, it, it, it did exactly what we had, we had wanted. Um, the second time around, you know, we wanted something a little bit more meaty, a little bit more meaningful. And we looked at a bunch of different things in terms of you know, everything from you know, bizarre lawn sprinklers you know, that would save water to you know, all kinds of random stuff. But Martin had this idea of, he, he'd wanted to buy an electric car. Uh, and it was right about the time when the zero emissions mandate got rewritten in Sacramento here in California. So all the electric cars had ceased to exist, and they weren't very good anyway. The EV1 was the only one that was kind of viable. And it was all leased, and of course GM took them back and crushed them. And so he was pissed off about that. He says, well, why don't we just do this electric car thing? You know, it's, it's, uh, it, it just can't be that hard. <laughs> um, so, and I thought, you know, how are we ever, you know, making a car? I, our experience with batteries in the consumer electronics world uh, for the e-books um, we knew the batteries were getting better and better and better. And you know, they had gone from nickel metal, think they'd gone really from NICAD to nickel metal hydride and then lithium ion and that you know, just in our, you know, sort of experience. And the lithium ion batteries were so much better than the nickel metal hydride batteries. However, they're a little bit more, you know, they're finicky to work with, but uh, you know, once you understand how they work with them, they're not they're not that bad. And they it makes up for it because the energy density is, is so much higher. So we were we were sure, you know, with you know some spreadsheet calculations that in fact you could put enough energy on a car to make it really compelling. I mean, way better than any of these, you know, EV ones or anything else that ever imagined. Uh, and the rest of it is a computer science problem because it's really just you know computers synthesizing waveforms to make motors go and. And, and a network problem, because there's lots of little computers required to do all of that. But, you know, that's, that's our world. Like, little computers that control stuff. Silicon Valley is really good at that.
1: Well, and so, can I also, because I, remember, the, the big thing at the time was, was hydrogen fuel cells and stuff. But you guys do the math, and you're, you're like, no, uh, EV is the most efficient way to go if you're, if you're trying to improve um, what a car could be, right?
0: Correct. if your goal is to reduce energy consumption, or specifically oil consumption, but but just you know, it, it, in any given resource, you you want to use it as efficiently as possible, right? So, uh, you know, you don't want to pick something that just consumes lots of that for no apparent reason. And hydrogen, you know, was the is uniquely bad. Um, it, it is it, you know, there's, there's a thing in the auto industry that says hydrogen is is the future of transportation and always will be, uh, and uh, it. It's a scam as far as I can tell uh, because the energy equation is terrible. It is just terrible because hydrogen, the proponents say, oh, but it's the most abundant element in the universe, Uh, but it's abundant out there in the universe, not here. We live on a planet. You know, on a planet, all the hydrogen is it's super reactive. It's bound up into everything. It's bound up into water and wood and everything else. Um, so the only way that you get hydrogen is that you have to pour energy in to, to make it. You have to break it free from the chemical bonds that it's bound up into. So electrolysis is the, the most common thing. You know, you put, put you know, electricity in water and it, it, it separates it. Um, but, you know, so you're making, you're pouring energy in in order to make the hydrogen. And then you have to to compress it, and then you, and that takes energy uh, and then you have to transport it to wherever you actually need it, which is you know very difficult because hydrogen is actually much more much harder to work with than than gasoline uh or, or even natural gas. and natural gas is not that easy uh and then and then you have to convert it ultimately in a car you have to and then you have this very high pressure vessel in your car, which has its own you know danger safety issues around it. And then on top of that, you have to convert it back into electricity to make the car go because, uh, you know, ele- hydrogen-powered cars are really electric cars that just have an extraordinarily bad battery. Hmm. And because and hydrogen isn't a, it's an energy carrier, it isn't, it, it's not a, it's not a primary fuel source on this planet. I mean, you know, it may be out somewhere in the universe, you know, it, it might be, but, but not on not a not on terrestrial planet. So, uh, and and so when you add that all up, it turns out that the amount of energy in per kilometer driven is just terrible. I mean, it's way worse than almost anything else that you can you can come up with, um, which I've always suspected is one of the reasons why the energy companies have been big proponents of it. And when we were when we were raising money the first time, you know, and we had really carefully gone through all the math to understand fuel cells because there was a bunch of money going into fuel cells at the time. Um, and also, we looked at you know biofuels and you know ethanol, and you know we sort of went down the whole list and figured out you know what the what the most energy efficient system was, which turned out to be battery electric cars because charging lithium ion batteries is like over ninety percent efficient, and then discharging them is also over ninety percent efficient. So you know you hardly lose anything in the in the storage part. But uh, we would go to these VCs and we would say you know so they about half we had a whole slide deck on on why hydrogen fuel cells were a bad idea. And about half the VCs would get to that slide and they'd say, "Oh, skip this. You know, we we know it." You know, and actually one of them used the word scam. "Oh, we know it's a scam. Just go, you know, mm-hmm. we, we've done the literally, we've done the analysis. We know." And the other half of the VCs would get real quiet and ask lots of questions about it and have us go back over the slides again about the hydrogen fuel cell because they had, of course, invested in fuel cell. <laughs> all of which went out of business uh, because it just doesn't. For, for, this, for, for, for transportation, there are fuel cells that are useful uh, for other things. You know, there's some, some really funny solid oxide fuel cells. There's ones that are like in the basement of the New York Stock uh, the, the Exchanges that run on natural gas, and they're used for backup power because they can't use diesel generators in downtown Manhattan. Uh, but, you know, there's, so there's some specialty things, but for, for, you know, storing energy and driving cars, it's insane because you almost get nothing
1: and learn what the rise of AI tools mean for human practitioners moving forward. Get your copy today at arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. That's arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. Well, so could I I prompt you for two insights? Because to me, I feel like reading about this, this was key. Um, Which is, first of all, actually, so there was recent experience with electronic vehicles, GM's EV1 specifically, and that experiment specifically told you that you could be successful because the, the word that I love or the quote that I love is that you learn that tree huggers and geeks have a lot of money. So, so tell me <laughs> about that insight.
0: Well, that isn't quite the insight. What was interesting about the EV1 was, you know, GM, not the most, you know, uh, well-loved brand among, you know, the money people. Because, uh, you know, if, you, if you're successful, you tend to go buy a Mercedes or a BMW or something. You don't go buy the, the latest GM vehicle. And when they had the EV1 out there, they only leased them in California. And yet, the people who leased them were all, they, almost all of them were very wealthy. And it is, so because electric cars are so incredibly energy efficient, uh, they're actually really cheap to drive per mile. You know, the, the per mile cost is, is super low. Uh, so. The, the sort of assumption for a lot of people was that the only reason that you would drive an electric car is because you were super cheap. Um, the, you, know, you, you wanted to save money on gas. There's also an assumption, uh, and that, that was widespread, that we were asked that constantly. Well, when will it pay for itself? It was a constant question that the VCs asked pay
1: for
0: itself um, by saving on gas. You know. By saving on gas. And of course, you know, it's a $100,000 sports car. You know, it's not, nobody, you know, that I would always say, oh, what sports car do you have? And they'd go, oh, I've got a Porsche, you know, nine I'd say, when will that pay for itself? Oh, well, that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it, it doesn't pay for itself. No, it's hugely expensive. <laughs> I would mean, be like, yeah, exactly. Um, but that's not why you bought it. Uh, it wasn't to save money. And that's, people don't buy electric cars to save money in general. Uh, so the, the the interesting thing was that the people who were, who were buying or leasing, in this case, the electric cars in California, were the very top—you know, the top one you know, percent—the people that you read about. Uh, they were clearly not trying to save money. Gas was at about a buck fifty a gallon at the time. You know, it—you it, know—they they literally were spending more at Starbucks than they were at the gas station, and yet they were buying electric cars or they were leasing electric cars, uh, and they were doing it for some other reason. So when we looked at that, we said, "Well, shoot, you know." The new technology is going to be expensive. We're going to have to come in you know, at a high point. What can we deliver? What extra value can we deliver? And it turns out electric cars are really, really quick off the dime. And sports cars, that's what you buy a sports car. That's what a sports car is about, is that incredible acceleration that you get. And there's nothing like an electric car in terms of acceleration. Uh, it's, it's <laughs> you know, we, we had people that would drive, you know, even you know, drive one of the Model S's now or drive the Roadster at the time. And and they would they would come back and say you know you broke my my Ferrari, you know you broke my my Porsche. And I'm like, what are you talking? About? I said, like, well, you know now I get in my my, my very expensive gasoline car, car and it's so slow, you know because electric cars have that instant acceleration that's maximum at zero rpm and stays maximum for a very long time.
1: And that's similar to the the other point that I found fascinating was because remember Priuses uh, become a thing around this time and. Toyota discovers a similar thing that the, the right. Prius sales actually cannibalized their Lexus sales. People were trading in their Lexuses for Priuses.
0: Correct, and that was not their plan. I mean, the the Prius was was for a whole variety of reasons. You know, they were only sold in California initially. Uh, they they came out for you know in typical Japanese fashion, it's incredibly torturous. You know, political path within, within Toyota, uh, and. They, they really weren't supposed to sell very well. And they certainly weren't supposed to sell into into that particular uh, demographic. And, in, you know, in downtown Palo Alto here, which is, you know, Palo Alto is a, a very wealthy, you know, suburb here in, in Silicon Valley. And literally at that time, every driveway had like a Porsche and a Prius. Um, they had traded in one of their cars, One of you know, they had traded in that BMW, they had traded in the Lexus, and they had replaced it with a Prius. And it wasn't about saving, you know, money on gas. It was because they didn't want to be consuming gas. Whatever they were making a statement. They were making a statement because, you know, all the cars do the same thing, right? If you, if, whether you buy a $100,000 car or a $10,000 car, you, you go the same places, you're going at the same speed. And at least around here, you know, you're rarely even going as fast as, you know, the freeway speeds because the traffic is so bad. So it doesn't, you know, it's not about, you, you're not going to get there twice as fast because you have a sports car. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, so people buy, and yet whenever, when anybody has any extra income, they tend to upgrade their car. And part of that is they want to make a statement. They want to, it's a reflection of who they are, whether it's the, the sporty image of the fancy sports car or the conservative image of the Volvo or, you know, whatever it is. But they're, they're really you know, making a a statement, and the wealthier you are, the sort of more flexibility you have to make that statement. And so the wealthy people around here were buying Priuses. They didn't want to be part of the oil economy, uh, or or at least they wanted to be less a part of the oil economy. So that was, you know, that was sort of the marketing insight that allowed us to come out with a sports car that was electric.
1: Right, that's that's that genius insight that, because, you know, so you realize that you can come in at the top of the market, you can come high-end, high-quality, um, sexy, flashy, um, but that also fits what you have to do for your business plan because there's no way you can compete with GM or Ford or anybody like that. Mass production, you need to start out small, right? So it's this amazing, it fits perfectly what you're going to have to do.
0: Well, right, and, and you know we looked very carefully at what – what other advantages other than just not using oil did did electric uh, drive provide? And, and that you know it turns out that of course as you say it fit perfectly electric uh, drive provides extremely rapid acceleration um, and it is a great thing is that the, the 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 model d which is the big sedan you know with all-wheel drive mm-hmm. um, it has a zero to sixty time of two point eight seconds so, uh... it's you know it's faster than the latest Porsche 911 mm-hmm. that they just released in North America and Somebody asked the Porsche rep. He said, "You know, so, so, you know, it's so your your Porsche is at 3.8 seconds 0 to 60, but the, the model, you know, D, the Tesla Model D is 2.8 seconds. It's a second faster." And he he's, "Oh, but that's not fair. You're comparing a sedan and a sports car." <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I thought, "Oh, that's great. You know, like normally you think the sedan would be the slower vehicle, mm-hmm. you know, but mm-hmm. but of course it's electric, so it's actually faster uh, or quicker in this case." Uh, so anyway, yes. So it, it worked out that we could come up with a plan, a, a kind of car, because was a, a whole, the, the modeling showed us we could make a whole variety of different cars. You know, in modeling, I mean, you know, Excel spreadsheets. You know. With- so
1: wait, yeah, I want to, I want to highlight that. So you're not talking about complex modeling; you're talking about literally just doing the math in Excel.
0: Well, exactly, and it's all you know, sort of high school math and physics, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because you're just, you know, trying to figure out well, how much energy does it take to accelerate something, you know, how much how much friction do you have on the wheels, and, and you know, how it, sort of an estimate of the, the aero drag based on a typical sports car, you know, we didn't have the actual design, but, or a typical car, so we'd put in, you know, truck or, you know, because an SUV, was SUVs were very popular at the time, we thought, well, maybe we could do an SUV. It turned out for a variety of reasons, we couldn't really make a, a compelling SUV uh, at, 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 at first, um, and, and, and then you, you know the energy density of the batteries and you know the, the gravimetric density and you know, how much energy you can put in per gram. So you can pretty, make a pretty good guess of how heavy the vehicle is going to be and you, that works out to the acceleration. But it's all, it's all sitting there in a spreadsheet fiddling with these numbers you know, and the incredible power of math to predict things. You know, we sit there for you know, weeks fiddling with this thing and we come up with like, oh, shoot, we can make a sports car that would really perform super well. And the price would be about this. And, you know, wow, this this would be, I think, a really compelling product. And then, you know, five years later when we release it, you know, pretty much we met that specification because, you know, the spreadsheet predicted what was possible through the math. And I I think that that's just amazing to me.
1: Okay, so doing the math is one thing. Um, uh, Doing the modeling is one thing. But you guys are software and hardware engineers but you're not uh, automobile engineers so um, I, I, tell me tell me how you get to the point of actually okay we're going to have to build a car <laughs> we can do well, right. we it, can solve the battery oh. things in math we can solve the software things but how are we going to make a car
0: well this was actually my my biggest concern with the project i kept telling martin he it it's great you know I, I am convinced we can make you know we we, we convinced ourselves uh, collectively, that we could do the the hardware and the and the, you know the software and the the drivetrain, we can do that, and the batteries are good enough and all that. But I just didn't see how we were going to be able to make a car. But then the more that we researched the industry, we discovered that over the previous you know 30 years, the car industry had completely refactored itself. So it went from being sort of vertically integrated, where you know the most famous being forge, you know, which literally would take in iron ore, you know, and produce you know model T's at the other end. Uh, to uh, the, the current model, where basically the car companies simply do final assembly, and uh, they and they make the engines they all typically make their own engines, but we don 't care about that because that 's the last thing we want is an engine uh, and actually, everything else is done uh, by other companies, so you know the windshield wiper motors are made by a different you know they 're all just suppliers they 're suppliers to these to the final assembly process and then some of the final assembly is actually completely outsourced as well. So at that time, like all the BMW X3s were being made by a company called Magnus Steyr in Austria. Um, they've never, you know, BMW had very little to do with it. I mean, they did all the, the Magna Steyr built all the cars. The Sobs were being done by Magnus Steyr as well. Uh, a couple of the other European American car companies that had European versions, Magna was building. So we knew that it was possible to go to a company like Magnet and say. Okay, here's the drivetrain, and you know, and the suppliers are going to be shipping you parts. Can you screw the thing together? Now, Magna tended to only they, they wanted contracts in the you know like 50,000 cars that kind of thing, and we knew the Roadster wasn't going to be that volume, so we ended up at Lotus that had experience making uh, low volume sports cars, uh, in it and had experience doing this outsourced manufacturing because they had done this. For uh, for GM, they had made the Opel Speedster for GM, and they had done it. I can't remember the other one, the Vauxhall something or other uh, that they had made for for a, another car company in Europe. So they had a legal structure that could accommodate us, and they had this idea on their line, you know, on their production line. They needed some of the cars they were making were Lotus Lotus cars, and then um, then they would either convert the line or you know for weeks or whatever their particular to keep the line running. Right but they would they would do something to keep the line running. But it would be producing another car for a different car company. So, because because so, if
1: you go to say a Ford and say hey we'd like you to produce a car under our name, there's no way they, they're no, going to say yes. They won't again. do
0: that. No. Right. No. No. Um, but but the, but you know Lotus was small enough, and they you know were scrappy enough that they had been doing it for other companies. Uh, and and of course then there were these other then there was this this other class of company that that's all they did. You know there's no Magnus Steyr. Branded car, they just make you know cars for for other car companies. So, uh, and and then so then we we ended up with a, a deal with Lotus because they had a better sort of impedance match with us.
1: Um, so okay, that that'll solve that end of it. But what about actually making the batteries work based off your math? Um, you're you're working with literal laptop batteries, eighteen six fifty, the 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 gold standard of the lithium ion. Uh, uh, battery cells. So, um, you, you just have to make packs out of them and then shove, <laughs> shove them in the in the car. You know, it, right?
0: it, it, it turns out that occurs. Obviously, there's a lot more to that. So, sure, The sure. 50s at the time were the the only they're the only industry standard sort of cell, uh, and I think that's still really the case. Uh, everyone now, for the most part, has gone to to various uh, lithium polymer technologies because they want the batteries shaped you know, to be at the bottom of the laptop or, you know, wrapped around the cell phone or, you know, whatever. Um, at the time, every laptop had these 18650s in it. Uh, and, and every camcorder, uh, which were those separate, they're like cell phones, except they didn't have phones. Uh, they part, you know, they just had video recorders, very strange things. Uh, all of them were, were using these 18650s. And this was really one of Martin's insights. As we were looking for how to make the, you know, make the packs, we were familiar with the 18650s from the, the ebook days, and, and you know, the thing is, he says, well, these, you know, let's just use these. I said, well, it's insane. You know, it's going to be thousands of them. Um, but the more we thought about it, that was a great thing because they were a commodity. They're made by dozens of different companies around the world. Um, Not all of them are the same quality, but they're all pretty much the same, you know, they're the same form factor, and and, and that's what you want. If you're a buyer, you want to have lots of choices. You don't want to be locked into one particular weird format that only one company makes. You want to have lots of competition, all beavering away to make those 18650s cheaper and better uh, for you. So the whole sort of chicken and egg problem around specialized automotive batteries goes away because we're just buying these laptop batteries. Now, it turns out that laptop batteries need to be uh, handled very carefully when you combine a whole bunch of them together. And the battery companies really didn't want us to do that. They so, didn't
1: want you to tinker with them at all.
0: <laughs> well, they did not want us to put more than seven of them together. Mm. And uh, cause, Because there is a chance that, that there will be a fire. Um, you know, you, if you mistreat them, you can get them to... to to essentially, you know, catch fire. They do not don't explode, but they kind of catch fire, and and then if you're really not careful, that fire can spread to adjacent cells. And Sony quite famously had a whole set of laptops that would spontaneously, you know, burst into flames this way because their charging circuit was messed up. I think it was—I don't know if it was a charging circuit or if it was a, a chemistry problem in their battery, but but they had a giant, very expensive recall. So the battery companies were extremely sensitive to having. Lots of these, because you could imagine if you put a lot of them together, you know, that could be a really big, big fire if, if, if you weren't careful. So they, they really didn't want us to do that. Um, but we eventually convinced them that actually we knew more about how to keep their batteries safe than they did. And uh, we finally got, you know, a supply agreement worked out. Uh, it turns out that if you go to a sales guy and you say, you know, we think, that, you know, if you, w- w- if you ask a seller, like, what is your fantasy customer for your batteries? And they say, oh, you know, they, they they would have, you know, three of these cells in a laptop and two of them in a camcorder and two more of them in, a, in an extra battery for their camcorder. And we go, okay, great. So, like, seven cells, you know, something around there. Per user, is, yeah. Per user, per customer. is your fantasy customer. They go, oh, yeah. And, and you're selling lots of them. They're selling, you know, hundreds of millions of these things. And I said, well, you know, we think that your market's a thousand times larger.
1: Because, because how many would be in every car?
0: Nearly seven thousand. <laughs> and you know, if you can convince even a relatively low-level salesman that their the market, their their addressable market is really a thousand times larger, um, you will get a call from the CEO of that company, no matter how big that company is. Asking about, what's this thing about a thousand times larger market? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we eventually convinced several of the battery companies to work with us. Uh, and it, it helped that we had by far the best safety data, because nobody else had really tried it. Nobody else, they, they had this sort of knee-jerk reaction that you don't put very many of them together. And it, you know, if, if you don't know what you're doing, you can, in fact, you know, hurt yourself. But, uh, you know, but if you think about it and do the right things, you can, you can actually make them quite safe.
1: So you guys are starting down the road in this amazing sort of engineer-hacker ethos of, well, let's just make it work. Let's do the math. The math is right. Let's make it work. One thing we haven't talked about is um, raising money and and convincing people, hey, we're doing a car company. And not only are we doing a car company, we're doing an electronic vehicle car company. (laughs) So tell me... What, what was it like? I believe you guys actually go to Sand Hill Road because that's what you know. You come from the Valley. How? What? What was it like to try to pitch a car company to to VCs on Sand Hill Road?
0: Oh, we were considered crazy. I mean, you know, but that's you know, so. So one of the things, if you raise enough money enough times, you know, you're used to people saying no. I mean, that's just the way it is. It's almost always, you know, they turn you down. Um, so that didn't bother us too much. What we did do though is we knew some VCs that. Um, that were friendly to us, I mean, they kind of liked us, but we knew that they wouldn't invest in us uh, because, like, for example, their fund only invested in uh, uh, internet routing, uh, was one of them. Right? Oh, they only wow. They did internet r- infrastructure sort of things. Or biotech so we were, or
1: something
0: like that. Or biotech, exactly. So, so we knew that we were um, completely outside of their investment space. Um, and we called them up, and we said, hey, you know, we have this crazy idea and we want to pitch you guys, uh, we know that you can't invest. So this isn't, you know, this isn't a pitch that you're going to have to actually respond to. But, you know, what we would like is just the feedback. And we weren't really sure whether, what they would say, but it turns out that, that if, you, if all day, all you hear are pitches for, you know, internet routing startups, if somebody says, I've got this crazy idea about, you know, high-performance electric sports cars, um, all the partners will show up if you, if you provide lunch and, and hear this because they want to hear something other than a router pitch. And, and so they gave great feedback as to things we had to change. And they asked you know, quite insightful questions, which you know, we thought we had our, all of our ducks in a row and all of our answers figured out. But it, you know, they would ask these questions like, oh, shoot, I don't really know that. Or they would challenge us on some of the numbers. And we wouldn't have answers to. So then we'd go back and sort of rethink and, and retool. And that's how we honed our pitch before we actually used our sort of silver bullets to get in with these cities that we thought might fund us. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you, you only get kind of one chance, really. Uh, so so we wanted to make sure that we had all the answers. So then starting in in January, we were doing this sort of over the holidays of 2003. And then in starting in January, we actually, you know, Went down Sand Hill Road, and you know VCs are always polite, or at least most of them are, and and uh, we quickly discovered that we could pretty much convince a few people in the VC firm that this was a cool idea and worth funding. But in a large firm, there's lots of partners, and you typically need sort of unanimous consent to make the investment. Uh, you know, it's it's it, the investments are you know pioneered by or you know sort of championed by by one partner, but but ultimately um, You need everyone to at least say, okay, as opposed to, you know, you're you're insane, we're not doing this. Um, And the larger the partnership, the harder that was, because there would always be one person that said, you know, this is insane. So we we began, we very quickly targeted um, smaller funds uh, that only had a couple of partners, because we figured, you know, we could probably get a couple people to say yes. Mm And we lined up money from uh, SDL Ventures and uh, Compass Technology Partners because they were, you know, relatively small funds with only, you know, one or two uh, deciding partners, and and of course, you know, various friends and family. Uh, and then we were in April, March, maybe March. Uh, we uh, we pitched Elon uh, as a super angel, mm-hmm. and Elon liked the idea, and he, you know, he's quite, you know, we. Went down to SpaceX and you know, did the pitch, and he, and you know, SpaceX at that time hadn't launched anything yet. It was a you know, total small little startup, doing you know, it was you know, years from from their first launch attempt, and uh, and he looked at it and he says, you know, I like this. I you know, I'm really concerned about oil consumption as well. Uh, I get the vision. I love the you know where you're coming in on the market. Uh, I'm in, and so he he led the Series A round. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, was on the board after that, obviously.
1: that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. And Shopify can do the same for your business. Sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify.com slash ride, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash ride now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ride. Was it was it just that simple uh, you pitch and he's in or did he did he do a lot of due diligence like
0: Oh he, he pestered it, so he, I, I'm simplifying that whole process. So so we pitched on a on a Friday or a Thursday or something, and then I was in Washington D.C. Uh, all uh, weekend. So I was, you know, sort of peppered with questions uh, uh, by Elon you know, over the weekend and then uh, into the beginning of the next week. And then I think Thursday or Friday of that next week, because I was back by then. We went we went back down to, to L.A. and uh, and he, you know, asked some more questions, and we told him, you know, whatever. And he says, okay. You know that, yeah. He would clearly checked us out as well. And he'd looked at our backgrounds, and you know, at, and we would answered all the questions apparently well enough. That, and he says, "Okay, I'm in, I'm in."
1: Yeah. Uh, and okay.
0: then, and it takes about a month, you know, typically from that point right. to to, but, to get the the paperwork all done and the money. It, it just
1: know. it just seems such an example of you know, it was so right up his alley, yeah. an idea that he would have been primed and ready to be interested. Well, it, it,
0: exa- exactly, yeah, and uh, you know, it, it was. Uh, it, it was exactly up his alley. And, and that's one of the reasons why you know, he was a very supportive, you know, originally investor, obviously, and now uh, you, know, you can argue he's been a very successful CEO for Tesla because it really was aligned with his interests uh, to begin with. And he, at some point he said, you know, if I wasn't doing SpaceX, this is, this, is, this is an example of something that I would be doing. You know, this is the right, uh, exactly the right approach and the, and the right market and doing the right thing, you know, for the right reasons. Uh, and it's you know hopefully going to be you know successful financially.
1: Um, we'll get into a little bit of the the step by step, but um, one more thing on the the fundraising thing because I, I liked this as an idea. Uh, every step along, when you would come out with a mule or a prototype or whatever, that's what you would use to raise more money. <laughs> you would literally oh, take the vehicle around and and drive people around in it, and, and then ask them
0: for <laughs> for oh, series uh, B, uh, series uh, C. Well, well so that thing is let's say that you need you know sixty million dollars for some project Um, it's incredibly rare uh, even even now that you're going to, it's not even really desirable to raise that money all at once because if you're just a couple guys at the PowerPoint um, your company isn't going to be worth very much so to take the 60, 60, 70 million at once even if you could get somebody to agree they're going to own the whole company at the end because you know the, the the initial value of your your idea just can't be very high, so what you do is you tend to you you raise money in tranches, which is you know relatively you know, easier although it takes you know you're always raising money in a way but so you raise a little bit of money at first and you say this is the big technical technical risk you know which in, in our case it was really around the battery because that was the thing that everyone always asked about can you really get this kind of energy density uh, in, in a battery like that and, and you know, can you really make it safe so you know, we, that was the goal of the first tranche of money. So the deliverable at the end of that was that we would have a, a mule, a, a, a vehicle that doesn't reproduce in the car industry. You know, you take a little bit of one company, or a little bit of one car and a little bit of another car. It's a rolling test platform that doesn't reproduce. And we, we made a mule. Uh, and at that time we used to Lotus at least because we already were, were, you know, on trend to the, to uh, deal with Lotus. And we, we built our battery pack, and then we used an AC propulsion motor and inverter, because it was really the battery pack that we were focused on. And we, were, meanwhile, you know, we were working on our own motor and inverter. But, but it was not. We knew we could do the motor and inverter. That you know, those had been around. I mean, Nikola Tesla invented AC induction motors, you know, 100 years ago. So, so we knew was, that was going to be possible, right? The most common motors, electric motors, in existence. The the thing that was a little bit unclear is whether we could really retire the risk around the battery pack. So. You build the car, and, you know, by and large, the VC community is not hugely imaginative. So when you come and you can give whatever it is that you're trying to raise money for, if you have a demo that really shows off what you're doing, um, it it helps investors get comfortable with the idea. So in this case, we had this little yellow um, uh, uh, lotus, and you got into it, and it took off incredibly quickly and was silent and beautiful and really fun and we got that and as soon as we were able to drive that literally we had we got it working you know like midnight the next morning we had a board meeting the board is there Elon is there Um, we show it off and and you know we're kind of we're not running out of money but it's time to raise money again and we had the, and we had retired that risk from an investor's perspective. They look and they go, "Wow, the battery system is going to work." You know, here's an example of it working, and wow, it was such a rush to ride in that thing. Um, they, it was a much more visceral experience. So, so then it was easier to raise money. So then we were able, we had a, we had some meetings with other VCs at that time. Uh, we were still in stealth mode, and uh, they actually. They, were, they came in from Chicago, they, they saw the place, they you know heard the song and dance, they all you know rode in the car, and uh, and the partnership was only three or four partners, and, uh, and they said, hey, can we borrow your conference room for a few minutes? We have a meeting we have to do. I said, oh, yeah, sure. You know, so, so they're going to be on the plane back to Chicago, and they come out of the meeting about 20 minutes later, and they said, you know, we're in. That was our partnership meeting. That was our Monday partnership meeting we just had. And it was because they had ridden in it. I think, you know, I really, it it proved to them that that this was possible and that it was unlike anything that they had been in. I mean, this wasn't some golf cart. You know, this was, and this was just, this was a mule. I mean, the the, the specs on the final car were much more impressive. But, you know, but we knew, you know, this was the the proof of concept that it was going to be, uh, something that was really going to be great.
1: To have. Well, so much of your story is about that convincing people, and later on in, in, in the press and things like that, that that electric vehicles aren't golf carts. In fact, they're better sports cars than you've ever ridden in your life. <laughs> you know, so I, it's such a great position to be in when the product itself. Is the thing that wins people over, you
0: know? Well, that, that's the goal. I mean, that's always the goal. You you want it. You want the. You you want your product to be the thing that tells the story, mm, and you, you yeah. see the product, and you go, "Oh, I get it. I want. I want to be part of this."
1: Okay, I, I'm gonna skip a couple steps here for for time purposes, but I, I another thing that I love about your story is. Um, Tell me the fun of crash testing, because uh, usually engineers in Silicon Valley don't get to throw their product against the wall and see what happens.
0: Well, it's it's actually incredibly impressive because there's a you know, we did not use a lot of traditional car engineers because you know most of the the car industry is not geared to Silicon Valley's sort of speed and mentality, and also a lot of it's wrapped around know, internal combustion engines and emissions and stuff like that, which we didn't have any need for. The, the one sort of sub-discipline that was incredibly impressive to me is the crash people. And, uh, and you, you, you hire, them, I mean, they're, they're companies that that's what they do, right? So, uh, and these people had had experience with, with the Lotus Elise, um, so, and it was you know, similar enough that their models you know, kind of you know, were, were not super hard to adapt. Um, and it was all, you know, okayed with, you know, through the, the Lotus, uh, you know, IP department. So they came and they, you know, take all these measurements, and they sit and model it, and they, you know, they don't take measurements, they just grab the CAD files and they, and they do everything. And they make a couple tweaks. And what's incredibly impressive is that they're able to say, again, you know, this incredibly predictive power, incredible predictive power of mathematics. Um, wow, you know, you might have trouble on the side impact on the doors. So we're going to want a special test for that because we want to make sure that that's going to be safe, because um, we think that's a little bit it's gonna, that's a little on the edge. Uh, but everything else should, should pass. And we you know, are getting these very expensive engineering prototypes. So at some point you say, okay, pencil's down, we know what we're going to make. And you go and you make some. And it's sort of production intent. So this is really what we think we're going to make. Um, but it's not production process. And you make 10 of them, uh, and they're all you know, largely identical except for color. And, and you crash some of them. And what you're really doing in those crashes is validating their computer models. Because in their computer models, they've crashed it many, many, many times. And they, you know, they've crashed it with all kinds of different manufacturing variances and to make sure it's always going to pass. Every, you know, every car will. Um, so, but but you know, how valid is the model? So we go, and you, you spend an enormous amount of money taking it to... Again, this is all part of this ability to do this because everything has been outsourced. In the olden days, those crash test people would have only—they would have been captive to, uh, the crash modeling people would have been captive to GM or whatever. Right. And and we wouldn't have been able to go to a, cra- a place that does crash tests because those were owned by Ford or whatever, you know, only for Ford. But instead, you know, we went to one of the several independent houses that did that kind of thing. Um, and this particular one, I think, was it, was with it, Siemens in in Germany or Austria. I can't remember where it was anymore. It's somewhere in Europe. Um, and they. Uh, and they, they have these very high-speed cameras and this incredible setup. And they take, you know, we have each one of these, these engineering prototypes cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to make. And they basically accelerate them into concrete walls. Um, and when they're not accelerating them into concrete walls, they're taking these, like, rams, like out of medieval, you know, things that storm castles, and they're smashing into, you know, they're, they're computer-controlled and accelerated uh, rams, but they're smashing those into the car. And, of course, they've instrumented the car like crazy. They're looking at the G-forces that happen on the driver and the passenger and, and, uh, uh, and you know, what happens to the car itself. But, um, and, and what you see is millions of dollars being just destroyed in front of your eyes in incredibly vivid, super high-speed HD. Um, you get these beautiful videos back that just make your heart sink in the sense of everything that's being, you know, lost. What is incredible to me, though, is you see these tremendous crashes and then, the crash test dummies look pretty good, and when you look at the data from the crash test dummies, you go, "Oh, they would have, you know, walked away." <laughs> it's it's amazing, it's, it's one of the reasons why I won't drive in old cars because yeah, it isn't, they they're really demonstrably more dangerous. The the modern you know sort of post airbag era of of crashes, you know, it really really made a difference. Um, oh. And what's incredible in the modeling, you know, we do the we the crash these engineering prototypes. And, uh, you know, the modeling exactly predicted it. I mean, like, within a few percent, they're like, oh, yeah, okay. Everything's but, fine. but they
1: still have to run the physical test anyway.
0: Yeah, because you, you really need to validate the model. Mm. Now, the, the big guys, um, the GMs and Fords and stuff, they have argued for years with their lawyers that they don't have to actually do the physical crashes because, in fact, they haven't had a mismatch between, at least this is what we were told, they haven't had a mismatch between their modeling and their crashes in years and years and years. And so they argue that um, once it passes through the computers, it's okay. And the lawyers have always maintained, if, if there was ever a suit, if there was ever, you know, if you had to prove it in court, it's so much better to have, just be able to see, this is what we did. You know, we crashed four of these cars or whatever in the crash test, in the physical things, and look at here's the videos and here's the results, that that is just a, a much more compelling legal argument than, you know, oh, we played with it in the computer and it worked great. Um, so, so But, it, but, the, but the, the, the crash modeling people had said
1: that they hadn't had a mismatch in years. Mm-hmm. All right, so bring me, bring me to the product launch. Bring me to where we get the, the first uh, uh, Roadsters out to the public, um, uh, February, 2007, you're doing validation prototypes, uh, but you start to run into trouble, like for example, with the transmissions.
0: Right. Yeah. So, so the engineering prototypes, what you do is you, you drive them to the, into the ground, basically, and you drive them into the ground as quickly as you can. So you do all kinds of tests. You put them, in, you know, ice, you know, you, 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 literally drive around on frozen lakes in cold weather. Uh, but those are, of course, test tracks that you hire out and they, you know, it's all, Professionally done, um, it, and it's you know again something that wouldn't have been possible in an era where, they, where the car companies owned everything. Um, and they have these these durability tracks that are like cobblestone race tracks, and you, they, you have, they have drivers that do nothing to you know beat the cars to hell on on these on these tracks. So you're trying to get 10,000 uh, or 10 years and 100,000 miles of wear and tear in as short a period of time as you can. And stuff flies off the car and breaks all the time. And everything that breaks, you do a, a big analysis as to, you know why did this fail? I mean, this shouldn't have failed. So you do this incredible sort of analysis going back. And the one thing at that time, in order to meet our top speed and our acceleration parameters, we had a two-speed manual transmission, which we didn't think would be hard. The car industry is making two-speed transmissions, or is making manual transmissions for 100 years. So we contracted with a, a small transmission house um, now, we had a lot more torque than they were used to, but we figured, you know, how hard is that? It's just some gears. It was not something that we really focused on because we had a supplier that we thought could deliver. And their transmissions just didn't work. Um, they couldn't shift, uh, which was unfortunate for us. Uh, so that was a problem. But we caught that in the sort of engineering prototype land. As we were feeding all these thousands of design changes in for the production, for the production cars, we also you know, realized the transmission wasn't going to work. So we then contracted with another, a much bigger by this time, we had a lot more money and, we're, and people knew what we were doing, a much higher profile, with another car, with another auto supplier to build transmissions. And we spent lots and lots of money with them and their transmission project was a little late, a little late. So meanwhile, we're doing all this other sort of testing and we just have some, some cobbled together, you know, sort of mule, if you will, transmissions. So we can do all the rest of the other testing um, except for the transmissions, and we finally get the the first articles on on what we hope to be the production transmissions, um, and they look kind of good initially, but we put them on the durability track, we put them on our dynos, which are the the test fixtures in the in the lab, and they all begin to break, and they all break in different ways, and that's not good. Yeah. If, it, if they all break in one way, you can kind of deal with it.
1: You can isolate but, it, yeah.
0: Right, but they're really they're really not breaking well. So uh, at that point, we were kind of, and it, by this point, everything else is done. You know, the, the, uh, uh, you know, we've gotten through all of the, what are called uh, FMVSS, Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards. All of them have been completed. We are ready essentially to ship, except we don't have transmissions at work. And this nearly killed the company. It was also in 2007, 2008, the money mm. financing was beginning to get a little skittish. And here we have this huge, it was the first milestone that we really missed in a big way. Everything else might have been a little bit, you know, more expensive or a little bit later. But we had, there, there was uh, conscious decisions along the way that did that. You know, we decided to make the car better or we decided to change the specs. It was, everything along the way was sort of much more conscious. This one was just a screw up. It, the, it failed. So, and it wasn't something, it wasn't in our core competency, you know, that we just didn't consider it to be something that we had to, you know, we, we were dealing with one of the largest transmission makers in the world. They should be able to make a transmission that works, right? We, we didn't really, um, we didn't understand how dangerous that was. Anyway, so uh, that was a very, very dark and bleak time for mm-hmm. us. <laughs> uh, but as it turned out, of course, Moore's law, thankfully, is ticking along. And the IGBTs, which are the, the switching transistors in the, uh, in the inverter that synthesized the waveform, they, uh, International Rectifier, I believe, was their supplier. They had a new version that was just coming out, and it was more efficient. Hmm. Not a whole lot, you know, they're, they're incredibly efficient, but it, this was more efficient. And what that means is that you can put more power through without them overheating. Hmm. So suddenly, by replacing these IGBTs and making a few other changes, we could increase the power that we could deliver to the motor uh, more than we thought possible, more than was possible with the existing uh, uh, transistors. And what that allowed us to do was to increase the horsepower and the torque so we could get to a one-speed transmission, which is just a, one, it's just a reduction. Right, rate. right. And that, the car industry, and actually our new supplier was awesome. And they came through for us and, uh, you know, did, did an amazing job and an inc- record- you know speed produced a, a beautiful transmission, and that 's what we ended up shipping, but we shipped it late. we actually shipped uh, some number of cars i can 't remember how many but you know our, our customers have been waiting for years you know? yeah. <laughs> so so we asked them so you you can we can you can take delivery now, but what we'll have to do is uh, but the transmission that we 're going to have is just it 's just something cobbled together and it 's not going to give you the final spec performance and then In about, you know, sometime over the next six months, we will bring the car back in for service and we'll replace the transmission and the inverter or whatever else that needs to be replaced uh, in the drivetrain to make it meet the specifications we promised. And I think all of the customers said, that's fine. We'd rather have it now uh, and be driving it around. So we started delivering cars, and then um, I think we called it Rev 1.5 or something of the the drivetrain. And then we we ultimately... uh, when the new transmissions came out and the new inverters were in place, we then just retrofitted the the ones that we had delivered.
1: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in america have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free good news with amazon music you have access to the largest catalog of ad free top podcasts included with your prime membership to start listening download the amazon music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So Moore's Law really saved you guys. It always does, you know. Yeah. <laughs> just, just when you
0: can't really fit that last bit of code into, into the space, it turns out that the memory chips are four times more dense for the same price, and you, 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 you know, upgrade.
1: Well, and so you, you guys do start to deliver cars, I think, in, in, in June of, of 2008. And, and I know it's, it's around this time um, uh, that you and Martin both uh, uh, leave the company. But can you tell me how close, because you mentioned this is when the financial crisis is hitting, how close to oblivion was Tesla around, <laughs> around the financial crisis period?
0: Well, when, when the transmission was, you know, when we couldn't deliver cars, I think it was a it was a near death experience, and you know for the for the company, uh, and it was really you know the existing investors, Elon especially, you know sort of ponied up, and at a time when it was really difficult to do that, um, and they you know funded enough to get us to the next milestone, which was delivering, and then once the cars began to be delivered, uh, and people were you know we were getting great reviews and people were really getting excited about them, uh, then it then, the next funding round was was easier essentially, because you know we had really retired a lot of risk. we were shipping cars at the time um, but that was a that was a near death experience for the company for sure
1: so um i'm I'm going to wrap up. There's other uh podcasts and interviews that 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 look towards the future um and I kind of want to always focus on on lessons from the past because that's you know what this history show is about. But uh, I've got two questions that will kind of be a little future and a little a little of both. Um I think that a competitive advantage that you guys might have had when you launched was that you were coming in at the end of of that first moment of electronic vehicles, you know, GM um, gives up on the, the, the EV1. Um, and so you kind of have the, the field to yourselves. Correct. Um, and then was there any thought mm-hmm. that like, okay, so we'll, because you mentioned that you, you were in quiet mode for a long time that, okay, once we perfect this technology, then everyone will come to us and we'll teach the entire automobile industry how to do EV? <laughs> was, mm-hmm. was that part of your thinking at the beginning? So, so what we had, you know, we, had, we didn't know, you know,
0: obviously, you, know, you don't know what, how everyone's going to respond, but we figured that if we were successful, we'd do a couple of things. One is that we would change people's perceptions of electric cars, that, you know, they weren't these lame golf cart things. It would be, even though that it was an aspirational product and that it was very expensive, you know, that people would say, oh, you know, if I ever get rich, I want one of those electric cars. As opposed to, you know, those lame things, it would be this, this aspirational product, product which we thought would enable the whole market, you know, moving forward. Um, but, but in terms of the other car companies, what our sort of expectations were was that we would release this, the car companies would sort of wake up and go, wow, you know, this is really possible. This can be, this can be done. These can be really compelling vehicles, uh, and there would be some amount of space race basically to get into the electric car business and, and uh, and we would have to deal with that you know, as, as it went. And we could deal with that in a couple of ways. We might uh, be suppliers to, to some of those car companies. It was possible that you know, there would be some kind of, we, we figured we would have more experience and more sort of electrically driven miles than anybody else in history by the time you know, this became a hot thing. So we would be the world's experts in that. And that would be a good place to be if all the car companies were trying to, to be in that space. So, there would be lots of potential deals there was you know who knows an acquisition i mean there was a lot of different ways of going. We'd have lots of options and and then we would we would move into a more mass market car, which would be a sedan. The sedan market is much much larger than the sports car market so ultimately you know the the, the model S was where we that, that, that's the high you know that that's a much much bigger volume than the the than wow. sports car um, but that's a very crowded space to be in and very difficult to be in so we figured. You know, as we move towards that, we would have lots of options. There would be partnership options that would be, you know, we would have lots of of, of, of room to maneuver. Um, and if it really, if the car industry just really decided to be very competitive with us, we also felt that Silicon Valley could outcompete them because they just move at a much slower pace. I don't think any of us really imagined that they moved as glacially slow as they really are. I mean, they're just now finally beginning to, to to get with the program, and still, you know, their their technology just really isn't as good. I mean, and you know, they have huge resources and tremendous experience, of, certainly in making cars. And I don't. I mean, I I certainly didn't expect them to take this long to sort of wake up and begin to take electric cars seriously and be, begin to produce um, competitive products which I think has played very well for Tesla. Uh,
1: Yeah, obviously. And, you know, sort of building off of that, and I'm I'm not asking this to be a troll, and I'm not asking you to specifically throw anybody under the bus, but (laughs) (laughs) because I, as listeners of the show know, I know a lot of people in the automotive industry, but I come from tech, and there's this existential argument back and forth between these two worlds. So my final question would just be, because you've lived it, you've experienced it, the difference between the car people and the tech people and, and if, if Detroit has to move in Silicon Valley's direction and, and if Silicon Valley is, is infiltrating Detroit's game, what have you learned about the difference between car people and tech people and, and the way they look at the world and their philosophy of, of product and, and innovation and things like that?
0: Uh, that's a good question. Uh, and there's a bunch of dimensions to it. Mm. One is, I think, that it isn't so much car people versus tech people; it's much more really giant old companies. Whether it's in the book industry, like we dealt with before, or I uh, probably almost any industry, if you've been around for a long time and you've done things the same way uh, for a long time, you get very used to it, and you're making money. You know, it's not like you're you know failing, uh, and there's a huge resistance to taking risks and trying stuff new, because that could have impact, you know, your division's numbers or your career, uh, and it just makes it very hard for innovative ideas to infiltrate these big companies. In Silicon Valley, we don't tend to have, you know, we don't have any hundred-year-old companies uh, that are that are big out here. I mean, we only have a handful, you know, the Intels and the Hewlett Packards and stuff. Uh, that have been around for a long time, and you know they they go through periods of sort of struggle. I think you know HP currently is struggling with that with that problem, and Intel to some degree. Uh, but and they're they grew up in this environment, and they're deep into this innovative culture. Uh, and I think that you know the, the car industry, which used to be very innovative and creative when they were smaller, but when they got very large and very content at making the same old thing every year, uh, I think that. That that is what makes them sort of ripe for, uh, you know, clever Silicon Valley startups. And I, as I said, I don't think it's really a car thing versus a, a Silicon Valley thing. I think it's just a Silicon Valley thing versus really old big, you know, industrial companies.
1: Well, yeah. And uh, when I I've told people that I was going to talk to you today, they said, well, that's not. That's not internet history, and I said, "Well, no. <laughs> What's so fascinating to me, is, as as famously, you know, software is eating the world. How 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 internet technology, digital technology, is going into everything, and and uh, as you say, it's not just about it's about any industry that's done things a certain way for even centuries, and and how it's being disrupted, and and you've lived it twice now, <laughs> with, with two different industries." Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Mark, for coming on the show and, and remembering all that.